0: You're standing on a clifftop on the western coast of Ireland. As you look out at the ocean, a strong wind is pressing into you.
1: The weather front formed on the other side of the Atlantic, where warm air from the Gulf of Mexico pressed against colder northerly winds.
0: It's often windy here on the Irish coast, but not always. Tomorrow, the weather will be calm as the front continues eastwards to knock over garden furniture in Great Britain.
1: The island of Ireland has made good use of its blustery conditions, with 5.5 gigawatts of installed wind power as of 2021, and in 2020 wind generated more than 35% of Ireland's electricity.
0: This is one of the highest levels of wind power penetrations in the world, which is amazing, but it does have one drawback.
1: What happens if the wind
0: doesn't blow? When renewable penetration reaches a high enough level, the risks of intermittent supply become more serious and need to be mitigated.
1: This can be done by having fossil fuel generation on standby, which we don't want to use, or it could be done with grid storage, which isn't really practical yet.
0: What if there was a way to exploit the free energy from that weather front as it moves across the continent?
1: What if Ireland could benefit from the fact that it is now windy in Britain? What if, in return, Britain could benefit when it's windy in Ireland? Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher.
0: And I'm Bernadette Ballantyne.
1: In this episode, we've partnered with WSP to talk about interconnectors.
0: HVDC interconnectors. That's high voltage direct current.
1: These are high capacity electricity systems that can deliver enormous amounts of power over long distances, directly from one electric grid to another. It's a simple enough idea, but the implications for how we generate, transmit and consume electricity are enormous.
0: In this episode, we'll look at a project called Greenlink, which will build a new interconnector between Great Britain and Ireland.
1: We will learn what it takes to build one of these HVDC systems, including laying high-voltage cables under the sea, the benefits they bring to the countries at each end of the link, and the implications of linking together to form a supergrid.
0: But before we get to that, we'd better start with first principles.
1: For long-distance energy transmission, it's important to keep power losses to a minimum.
2: One of the big things we try to do as engineers is not to waste energy by just heating up the wires, heating up the atmosphere. If we can increase the voltage of the transmission, we decrease the current. If we decrease the current, we
1: decrease the loss of energy. This is Norman McLeod. He's the technical director, HVDC, for WSP. For decades, he has been contributing to the evolution of interconnectors.
2: I was the director of a team working for one of the big manufacturing companies that developed 800 kV DC technology. The previous threshold had been about 500 kV, but we knew that to get more power over longer distances we'd have to increase the voltage.
0: This innovation allows the construction of interconnectors up to 3,000 kilometres, not very useful for Europe, but it's very useful for countries in Asia, South America and Africa.
2: So it suits huge countries with big power demands uh, and huge distances to cross.
1: Although distances in Europe do not require voltages as high as 800 kilovolts, a 500 kilovolt rating is still considered very high. So that's the HV part of HVDC.
0: But why direct current and not alternating?
2: Using direct current is two things really, it has lower losses than AC transmission, and it is more controllable than AC transmission. AC transmission is how the world works, and it's how the world has worked for the last 100 and, whatever, 140 years, and it's very flexible, very adaptable, and it's, it's the universal solution.
1: But if all you want to do is move power from, for example, a hydropower plant next to a big river, a long distance to a load centre such as a city or an industrial zone,
2: and you don't want to drop off any power in between, you just want to have a point-to-point connection, uh, which is what we're doing in these huge schemes. HVDC is more efficient, you lose less energy along the way. Theoretically, we only need two wires, positive and negative, like a car battery on a on a grand scale. We only need two wires. If you look at an AC transmission network, there are always three wires or multiples of three wires. So we we save in material.
0: Direct current's also more controllable because it's not an inherent flow of electricity. It only flows when instructed to do so.
2: And we tell it to millisecond by millisecond by millisecond. If we don't tell it to flow, it won't flow. It'll stop instantly. Whereas with AC, you don't have to tell it anything, it'll just float because you strung the wires
1: from the generating station to the load centre. As well as controlling where the power goes, when it goes there, and whether we want to increase or decrease the amount of power, it's impossible to overload the scheme by accident. AC is very different. It can be overloaded very easily, and great care has to be taken to avoid that.
0: DC is also good if two countries that use different electrical frequencies want to transmit power between themselves.
2: So if you live on an island and you want to connect to your neighbour, if you just string an AC cable under the sea, you're forced to operate at the same frequency as the other country. You're forced to have their problems and their faults and everything else.
1: If you convert to DC in your country, put a DC cable under the sea to your neighbour, then they convert to AC again
2: You've effectively decoupled the two countries. You can still exchange power both ways, but you're no longer constrained to operate at the same frequency. You're no longer to have the same operational regimes, protection regimes. You can do what you want in your own country. So the island of Great Britain, for example, is not connected to France or Denmark or Belgium, except by HVDC. There are two links to the island of Ireland, which again is not connected except by HVDC to Great Britain. And we're now beginning to connect some of the remote islands. There's a DC scheme going up to Shetland for example.
0: A HVDC cable itself contains a high voltage conductor in the centre that carries the current. Outside of that there's insulation, for example a plastic extruded insulation, and outside that there's a grounded screen.
1: So although there are hundreds of thousands of volts in the core, the outside is zero volts. A cable is maybe 150 millimeters in diameter and could be placed anywhere. You could almost sit on it.
2: It'll be a bit warm but <laughs> I don't sit on it. So you have one of these cables, this is the positive cable and beside it you'd have the negative cable and the current would simply flow between the two cables. So you must always have an electrical circuit, positive to negative, to make the, the, the circuit.
1: So two of these cables side by side in a trench at the bottom of the ocean, and you have an electricity link that will probably last more than half a century.
2: The alternative would be an overhead transmission tower with six cables strung from 45 meter high towers. It's a very much larger infrastructure. It's expensive.
1: Especially if you were to build those towers down to the seabed, which is obviously not a realistic concept, so submarine cables are the only way to link two countries.
0: The first HVDC interconnector was a 98-kilometre link from the Swedish island of Gotland to the mainland. It was installed in 1954 and had a voltage of 100 kV and could transfer 20 MW of power.
1: The second link in 1961 was 200 MW from Kent to Calais, using that initial Swedish technology from which all interconnectors have descended. Since then, ratings and numbers of HVDC links have grown, although it still represents a small percentage of the world's transmission systems.
2: The initial driver was twofold. One, interconnecting networks that were not synchronized together. Scandinavia, for example, is not connected to Western Europe electrically. So Finland, Sweden, Norway are in an island, electrical island, separated from Denmark and the rest of the European grid and had been for a long time.
1: From the 60s onwards, we began to connect the Scandinavian and European grids.
2: Essentially, like to share risk, if if you have a problem with power, you can bring power in from your neighbour and vice versa. These are bilateral exchanges of electrical power. Um, the Power can flow either way you wish. At the drop of a hat, <laughs> you could reverse power in milliseconds, you know, extremely quickly in an emergency.
0: And this was the case with the links between Britain and France too. But now there's a new driver.
2: As we begin to think about renewable energy, for example, the UK has great renewable energy resources in terms of wind. But when the wind is blowing very strongly, we may have to curtail the wind because we don't need so much power and we can't store it effectively. One of the problems with electricity, unlike coal and gas and oil, is you can't easily store it in a bunker somewhere. You have to
1: generate it and use it in the same instant. But now we have interconnectors to Europe. We export our surplus wind to the European grid or the Irish grid and vice versa. And when there is no wind anywhere, perhaps we can buy French nuclear-generated power. So it
2: improves the security of supply and it allows a greater penetration of renewable energy because one of the issues with renewable energy, it is intermittent. The wind does not always blow, the sun does not always shine. So what do you do when it doesn't? The answer is exchange with your neighbours.
0: And in the present day, the number of interconnector projects underway has proliferated enormously.
2: If you go back 10 years on the British grid, you would have found maybe three interconnectors, one to Ireland, one to France and maybe one to the Netherlands. And now you'll find seven or eight with another 10 in planning or construction and many more in the future.
0: And one project that's just achieved financial close, and will go ahead, is the Green Link between Great Britain and Ireland.
3: Green Link started as the Green Wire project. At the time, there was a concept that they would actually build two interconnectors, one to northern Wales and one to the southern part of Wales, where we we do now connect. This is Daniel Abbott, Greenlink Engineering Manager for WSP. That was to basically act as as an export for three gigawatts of wind on the island of Ireland that would be directly connected into the UK grid. Now that, for various reasons due to its size and complexity, never came to be. But in the time around probably 2014, 2015, the UK government and indeed then Offgem expressed an interest for more interconnection. So we we created the Greenlink project from that that original concept and we took the bit that was desirable and and had a good future which is the the interconnector, in this case the one down to to Pembroke, and we, we created this project from that.
1: Daniel is something of an interconnector generalist. He has sight of all the moving parts on the project, and he previously worked on the east-west interconnector, which is also between Great Britain and Ireland.
0: The connection points for each end of the link were decided by the transmission system operators in the UK and Ireland.
3: So that's a fairly well-defined process of of you approaching air grid in Ireland and national grid in the UK, and saying, hey, I'd, I'd like to connect 500 megawatts of, of uh, you know, capacity into your network, can you have a look at where that would fit best? And and then they return a an offer to you for that. It is really one of the first steps in developing a project like this. And then the hunt begins to find appropriate
1: landfall sites. Daniel feels this bit has gone really well. This is also one of the
3: first interconnectors to be privately financed, which he's also proud of. We've gone through quite a process with commercial banks to make that possible. And essentially, you know, we, we've opened up a new asset class to this kind of arrangement. Historically, these kinds of projects have been built by major utilities like National Grid here in the UK. And it's an achievement that I'm certainly very proud of, and I think the project's very proud of, to, to have made it possible to build such a thing with, with solely private investment.
0: This will make interconnected projects even easier to finance in future, and it doesn't hurt that the benefits are so clear.
3: Interconnectors can play a great role in the security and stability of our wider transmission networks. I mean, there was the famous event not very many years ago in the UK when we we lost generation in, in large parts of southern England, and it was clear that interconnectors could have played a bigger role in in reducing the disturbance to the network,
1: the components of the Green Link, starting at the Irish side, begins with an interface with the Irish network, which is owned by the Irish Electricity Supply Board and operated by Airgrid.
3: That's at a place called Great Island, in County Wexford. The substation there at Great Island is is operating at two hundred and twenty kilovolts. And we, on behalf of AirGrid, will build a small substation, uh, which will be our our point of interface. So that will be a gas-insulated substation. It would look to anybody who sees it like a, a building. It's an indoor environment. And then from there and immediately adjacent to that, we've got a kind of showcase for the project, which is mirrored on, on the other side in Pembroke. And, and that's our converter station. So this sits on a platform, which is a 185 meters by 100 meters as a rectangular footprint. This is where the HVDC control system, the valves will happen. And this is the, the point of conversion from AC alternating current to DC.
0: Having converted to DC, there's then a 20-kilometre underground cable route running beneath rural roads and avoiding agricultural or private land.
3: And that takes us all the way down to a place called Bagginbun Bay. And at Bagginbun Bay, we use a technology called uh, a horizontal directional drill. And that's a drill which is trenchless, and, and basically we use like a fluidised um, hydraulic uh, drilling pressure to... Uh, create a a duct and a bore that extends about 800 metres from the the beach head out into the ocean. So having performed those drills, we we then have a transition at that point from an underground cable to a submarine cable. And that submarine cable is substantially very similar, but uh, critically it has an additional layer of steel armour wire, which protects it from any external damage that it may suffer.
1: The armouring around the cable protects it from damage as it's laid from the cable
3: installation vessel to the bed of the sea. So that is um, that. That cable is is laid on the seabed, and so that that uh, will be done in two campaigns. We'll actually do the Welsh side of the project first in 2023, and the Irish side of the project then will follow in 2024. So once the cable has been laid on the seabed, we would then come along and we would bury that cable and we use trenching tools to, to carry out that and to backfill the trench. The joint in the middle is what's described as an omega joint, so it, it's like the, the Greek letter omega, and you can imagine pulling up the two ends of the cable from the seabed onto a vessel, forming that joint, and then setting them down like a, a loop in a piece of string. Laying the cable in a trench protects it from fishing damage, for
1: example, trawling. However, a heavy ship's anchor can damage a cable, even in a trench. There'll be more on the trenching and the middle joint in a minute.
0: So having transited the 160 kilometres across the Irish Sea?
3: We arrive at a very attractive beach called Freshwater West. It's a popular surfing destination in, in Pembroke in South Wales. There we have essentially the mirror of the process in Ireland, also horizontal directional drill, and um we have a much shorter underground cable route there of about six kilometers. That's substantially in agricultural and private lands. We're very keen that we don't disturb the uh the the, the tourists and the visitors to the area as they're there throughout the summer months. And we, we arrive at the Pembroke substation. Now the Pembroke substation is a a fairly industrial environment set in otherwise a a beautiful and tranquil part of Wales. We're surrounded by the Valero oil refinery and the RWE CCGT power plant. So we'll nestle in in that industrial environment and we'll build the mirror image of of what we have in Ireland, which is the, the point at which we'll convert from DC back to AC. And then the short run of cable will will take us into the National Grid Pembroke substation.
1: The link will operate at 320 kilovolts, which Daniel says has become relatively standard for projects of this kind, and allows a power transmission of up to 1,000 megawatts, 1 gigawatt. However, local constraints mean that the project will only transmit at 500 megawatts.
0: This is because the electricity network in Ireland is relatively weak. A single link providing more power is too risky. Here's Norman again to explain.
2: We can't really afford to have so much power in one circuit because you have to consider what happens if it trips out, what happens if there's a fault. You'll have to look at the worst-case scenario. Could your system withstand the loss of 2,000, 3,000 megawatts? For Great Britain, the answer would be no. For Ireland, the answer would definitely be no because it's a much smaller network. For continental Europe, which is a much, much larger network from the French coast to to Russia, from Denmark to the Baltics, and so, uh, to, the, to Greece and so on. I think that the maximum they could lose is about 3000 megawatts. So there is a power limit which will hit beyond which if we lose that much power in a single event, it will destabilize
1: the grid an eggs-in-one-basket situation. So 500 megawatts is about as much as Ireland would allow in one link, at least for the moment.
0: Paul O'Rourke is the construction director for Greenlink. Like Daniel, he worked on the East-West Interconnector.
4: I was the marine project manager on that. And at the end of the job, for the final six months, I was the overall project director. So yeah, a lot of similarities between that project and this project. Uh, and that, that was between about 2008 and 2013. So uh, it's interesting to be back again you know, 10, year, 10 years later, building another interconnector a couple of hundred kilometers further to the south.
1: In those 10 years, trenching technology has stayed more or less the same. Perhaps some of the trenches have become more powerful,
4: like, I think, for example, the trencher that we're going to use, the jet trencher on this project, can develop 1.2 megawatts of jetting power, where the one that we used on the East West interconnector had 750 kilowatts of fluidizing jetting power. So, that, that's one kind of thing that I, I could think that's kind of moved on.
1: Trenching is the process by which the cable will be placed below the seabed. Greenlink will be installed by what is known as post lay burial.
4: So a very large cable-lay ship will lay the cable uh, in a bundle, the two power cables, plus 320 kV, minus 320 kV, and the fiber optic cable laid in a bundle on the seabed. A trenching support vessel, which operates the trenching equipment, will come along afterwards, you know hours or, or, or a day or two afterwards. Trenching is a slower technique. So, you know, we expect after a while, there will be a gap of a week or two between the, the Cable A ship and the, the trenching support vessel.
0: The trenching support vessel will have containers on the deck of the ship with remotely operated vehicle pilots in them.
4: And the pilots will control the trencher. So the trenchers are, are launched from the deck of the ship very carefully into the seabed and then they are placed on top of the cable. The, the, the cable trencher will pick up the cable very gently and then start uh, to cut the trench and then the cable is gently p- pushed into the trench by a depressor uh, as the trencher moves forward.
1: Two types of trencher are used. A fluidizing jet trencher, more commonly used in sandy areas of the seabed. It works by jetting high-pressure water into the seabed. Then there is a chain-cutting trencher, which is used for stiffer materials and looks like a heavy-duty chainsaw.
0: The ground along the cable alignment is expected to be two-thirds sandy and one-third stiffer materials.
1: As Daniel mentioned, the submarine cable will be installed in two campaigns. The first begins in September 2023 and will last three months. The second will be from March to June 2024, and the cable jointing process will take place shortly after the second campaign.
0: That's a delicate 10-day process that requires perfectly calm weather conditions, so the summer seas offer the best chance of smooth operation.
1: For the second campaign of cable trenching, a completely new kind of trencher is being developed, capable of doing chain cutting and jet trenching.
0: The trencher is the result of the contractor Sumitomu investing a lot of money with a manufacturer called Jandenull.
1: The finished trencher will be named the Swordfish, And if development is successful, it could see its first use on Greenlink.
4: And it's bringing some some interesting features that we haven't seen in other jet trenchers. So we're we're quite excited about that. The contractor certainly is the contractor who's developing it. And, um, you know, we continue to watch that carefully.
1: At each end of the submarine cable, both landfalls will be undertaken by Horizontal Directional Drilling, or HDD
4: on the Welsh end is the longer of the two. We're looking at about 1270 metres of HDD. So there will be uh, two bores, one for each of the power cables, and the fibre optic cable will be pulled through one of them, along with a power cable. At this point in time, there is still some of the engineering ongoing, but it's looking more likely that we will use um, steel ducts because of their strength and the favoured option is to push the ducts through from the landward side
0: the irish side is similar but around 960 meters in length
4: one of the constraints we have at the irish side is the hdd exit points are quite close to a couple of archaeological uh, sites so we need to be very careful to avoid them uh, during the, the, the exit but that will be catered for in the HDD design.
1: As things stand, geological boreholes have not detected large amounts of rock, which is good news for HDD, which is better suited to softer ground. Work at the converter station sites began on 10th of January, 2022, so the project's officially underway.
0: Once in operation, the main challenges facing the link besides maintenance and unplanned outages are commercial.
1: So here is Colin Darcy, Commercial Director for Greenlink, to explain.
5: When an interconnector is running smoothly, it's, you know, it participates in the markets, it's dispatched, and it's, uh, I won't say a straightforward asset to run, but a lot more straightforward to run than, let's say, a a generating plant where you have to buy commodities and start up and shut down frequently, etc. So I suppose when it's running smoothly, It shouldn't be too onerous. We will have trading operations to do in terms of forward trading in particular, uh, you know, FTRs potentially, things like that. So there'll be an ongoing kind of trading aspect. But really where the, the, the main thing that will really kick in is if there is an unplanned outage. And I suppose then dealing with the technical consequences of that, potentially working with the contractors to to, to mobilise. You'll also have commercial implications from those in the markets, uninstructed imbalances that need to be traded out.
1: So what are uninstructed imbalances?
5: When you are dispatched in the energy system, in the energy market, you've effectively committed to generating or supplying an amount of energy. So in our case, as an interconnector, we'll have potentially... Committed to importing, for example, 500 megawatts into the UK. So, on a, on a day where there's surplus generation in Ireland because of wind or solar, the, the, the price should be lower here than in the UK. Therefore, the markets will deem that the, the flow should be exporting in that direction. If the interconnector then trips or fails to deliver that, we have an uninstructed imbalance. We have an imbalance from what we said we would actually deliver and therefore there's a, there's a commercial penalty uh, and you have to trade that out effectively uh, and deal with that uninstructed imbalance.
1: Because the market expected energy to flow, as it hasn't, another generator needs to be ramped up to deal with the imbalance.
5: Therefore there are commercial implications for the party that doesn't deliver as instructed.
0: Greenlink will be the third 500 megawatt interconnector between Great Britain and Ireland, bringing the total power supply up to 1.5 gigawatts. Here's Norman again.
1: From the Irish perspective, that's quite a lot of
2: interconnection to the UK grid. Ireland is becoming more and more dependent on wind energy, renewable energy. So the penetration they have in their grid is amongst the highest in the world, I think, in terms of how dependent they become on wind energy. So it's... Improves the security of their supply if they are linked to the British grid, which is a mix of wind and solar and gas and nuclear. So if you want to have run a country with a huge penetration of wind power, it's probably best to have a backup system, which essentially in this case is a, a link to your neighbour. And the same holds true for Great Britain, as we have more and more wind power on our system. It is more gives us more security if we can link to the French. Belgian, Danish, German, Dutch systems and so on, just to improve the security. If something if the wind is not blowing, we can import power. If the wind is blowing, we can export power. So it's really, from my perspective, GreenLink is driven by the the need to ensure the security of supply in Ireland because of the high penetration of wind power.
1: When a continent begins to link together electrically, it could become what's known as a supergrid. There's no technical definition for when it happens but a large and robust enough grid can behave very differently.
2: It's really around the use of uh, renewable energy. How do you run a grid as large as Western Europe, which becomes heavily dependent on renewable energy? The wind is blowing strongly in the the north and west, but people don't live in the north and west, they live in the centre. The sun is shining very strongly in the south, around the Mediterranean and North Africa. But again, the population centre is one or 2,000 kilometres north of that. The water is um, primarily in Norway, hydroelectricity, but other nations with big mountain ranges and so on.
1: So how do you interlink all of these disparate generation sources across what's quite a large area? And if you think of Western Europe, from the Ural Mountains to the Atlantic coast, from the north of Norway to the south of Italy?
2: It's a big area. It's not quite Africa, but it's, it's big enough. So the concept of the European supergrid was was born to try to exploit that um, diversity of renewable energy sources and improve the security of everybody's supply. That's you're not dependent on the, the sun shining 12 hours a day in your country because for the other 12 hours a day you can import wind power from somewhere with a surplus of wind like in Scotland for example. There's a lot of wind in Scotland but not a huge population whereas there's a lot of huge population in Central Europe.
0: But not a lot of wind potential. The supergrid is a way of thinking how we could integrate all of these systems, whereas at the moment we're building individual systems.
2: Green Link is just a one-off system. It's not built in conjunction with anything else. But effectively, there'll be three links down the Irish Sea. So there's a mini supergrid in the Irish Sea evolving, shall we say. Nobody designed it as such. The owners of the three links are quite different. Two of them are private companies and one is is the Irish transmission company. But de facto, we're slowly but surely building the European supergrid.
1: And enabling a stable European energy market with a high penetration of renewables.
0: Hopefully taking the continent one step further to ending our reliance on polluting fossil fuels and unreliable suppliers.
1: Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Bernadette Valentine. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own electric windfall is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, WSP in the UK, and also to the Greenlink Project. And thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn.